Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this glorious music, for this glorious truth that we sing. Perhaps we came today believing and then out of our belief we wanted to sing. Or maybe even in our singing we have come to believe today that you are the joy, not only for all the world, but for all of us. And I thank you, Lord, that our joy does not depend on circumstances because our circumstances don't always dictate joy, but you always do. And so we're glad, Lord. We were glad when they said to us, let us go to the house of the Lord. And we are glad today in this day that you have made and we will rejoice through Christ our Lord. Amen. God is good all the time. See, I've been waiting all weekend to say that to you. It's good to see you. It's good to worship with you and just to be together. And have you noticed how the holidays are in a hurry these days? Maybe they've always been. But I I think uh, just up the street here, they started putting up Christmas decorations. Wow. Maybe... uh, Maybe I know before Thanksgiving, but maybe around Halloween. I'm not sure. And I was listening to a Christian radio station over the holiday. Melanie has satellite on her on her Honda, and uh, and it was interesting because they had done a survey of those who listened to their radio and said, "When do you want us to begin Christmas music?" And they said, "Not till after Thanksgiving. We don't. We want our holidays to come in order." And the first Christmas song I heard was "O Come, O Come." Emmanuel. And I just had to sort of sit and soak in that song for a little while on Thanksgiving Day and to think about what that means. O come, O come, God with us. What would it be like if God came into our world? Well, we know that He did once, and we know that He will again. So we lit the first candle, and we'll light three more candles, and then on Christmas Eve, we'll light a whole bunch of candles from the center candle, from the Christ candle, and we do all of this because we are preparing for the celebration of Christ's coming, and we are living in anticipation of Christ's coming again. But in between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming is the reality of Advent that Christ has come that Christ has come in us, how then shall we live? What are the ethical implications of Advent? Let's continue our reading of the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 25. We'll think today about walking in love. Next week, walking in light. The next week, walking in in wisdom. Today we walk in love. Ephesians 4 verse 25. Let's stand together as we hear the word of the Lord. As God speaks to his people through his word, he has just told us that we are created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood And speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing 
must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Don't you love that expression? Live a life of love. Of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Thank you. You may be seated. So what difference does it really make in the way you and I live that Christ has come? In a word, all. It makes all the difference. Paul would say to the Colossians in a parallel statement of this same passage, Colossians 3, 9 and 10, if you want to write it down. He says that this putting off of the old and putting on of the new actually happened at the moment of our conversion. At the moment of regeneration, as Paul says to the Corinthians, old things passed away. All things have become new. And now he's simply saying to us, by God's help, let us become who we are. He is not saying, by the way, let's all try a little harder to do a little better. That's not the gospel That's moral deism, and by the way, it's kind of frustrating to try a little harder to do a little better. What he's saying is, the good news is that though we were sinners, Christ died for us, and this Christ who died for us and rose again, ascended into heaven, sent his Holy Spirit to live in us, to seal us until the day of redemption. So we have God's guarantee of his gift of eternal life and that changes the way we walk and that changes he says the way we talk let me put it this way the word became flesh in the beginning was the word John 1 and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and lived among us and we beheld his glory John says the glory of the one and only who was full of grace and truth and if the word of truth has come into our lives then won't that affect the way we use our words So, for instance, he says, instead of speaking the empty words of lies, like the word of truth that has come to us, we will speak words that are full of God's loving truth. Instead of speaking angry words to each other, he says, we will speak words that instead of tearing people down, we'll build them up. We'll look at that in Jeremiah tonight. Instead of speaking ugly words, words of obscenity and vulgarity, He says, we will give words of thanks to the God who has given so much to us. So the coming of Christ affects 
our giving. It affects our forgiving. It affects our thanksgiving. The fact that the word has come means the words we use are transformed by his truth. Let me show you, first of all, he says we no longer speak empty words, words of deceit and lying, even though we live in a world, Lester's given me, Lester gives me good things. He gave me a little book, and it's a book by some missionaries to Brazil, and, and it says that the, the world we live in is so steeped in images that the truth no longer matters. It no longer matters what the truth is. It just matters who you pretend to be. That is, that is evident in our world. In that same book, there's a quote of a, a young man named David Christian Smith. And David Christian Smith simply says in that book that, that we lie as easily as we walk, as easily as we talk. He says we cannot choose not to lie. You can tell when we are lying, he says, when our lips are moving. Paul lived in that kind of world. Honesty was such a lonely word. Everyone was so untrue. But when we become followers of Christ, then we're no longer bound to lie. We are bound to tell the truth because the truth lives in us. Thinking about the Advent story, we think about Herod who, when he met the wise men, we'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks, but when he meets them, what does he do? He lies to them, doesn't he? He says to them, when you find the Messiah, call me because why? Remember what he said? I want to come and worship him also. Worship was the farthest thing from Herod's mind. He even lies about relationship with God. And in this world of sort of always lying, Paul says to the church at Ephesus and the church at Tallowood, therefore each of you, so it includes all of us, must put off falsehood like we put off an old coat or an old suit. We put off falsehood and we speak truthfully to our neighbors. And why do we do that? Because he says we're members of one another. When we lie, we're not just hurting the person to whom we're lying, but we're hurting ourselves because we're all interconnected. Christ is the head, remember. We are his body. It would be foolish for my, my foot to step on my hand because it, it, it not only hurts the hand, but it hurts the foot. It hurts all of me because I am an integrated whole. In the same way, the body of Christ is integrated. And he says, we no longer want to lie to each other. But the good news of the gospel is not just that God takes away the bad. Look, we had that with the ninth commandment. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. We know that part. We know that we shouldn't do bad things. You want to see it in the beginning of the Bible. It's in Exodus 20, 16. In the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, it says hell is made for people who lie. We've got all the impetus we need in fear to stop lying. But the gospel is more that you and I, than you and I will just try a little bit harder to stop lying a little bit more. The gospel is that God replaces lying with truth so that we begin to live the truth. We begin to tell the truth, that the very truth, the integrity of our lives overflows from our mouths and we speak truth one to another. I love the story of, of Lillian Carter with her southern manners when the... Um, reporter knocked on the door when her, when her son was uh, president and, and uh, she invited this reporter in really against her own better judgment but she was just too kind not to and the reporter was angry at Jimmy Carter and said he campaigned on a slogan that said I will tell you the truth. D does your son really tell the truth? And she said well I think you can believe what he says 
And then they asked Jimmy Carter's mother, well, has he ever told a lie? Now, can I just ask you, if somebody asked your mother that, what would the answer be? I don't care who you are. What would the answer be? She said, well, he was given at times to tell white lies. Really? So he has lied, the reporter said, really feeling like he was onto something. So your son has lied. So what exactly is a white lie? She said, you want to know what a white lie is? The reporter said, yeah, tell me what a white lie is. She said, well, like when I met you at the door and said I was glad to see you. Yeah, I wasn't really telling the truth because I wasn't really glad to see you. Well, we speak the truth, but we speak the truth in love. We love God so much that we tell the truth. We love each other so much that we tell the truth. So that unlike the the message as it, it speaks about the father of lies, Satan, and says that lying is his native language. Lying may have been our native language, but we've learned a new dialect because the Spirit of God speaks through us and speaks truth. So he says, no, no more empty words, but we, our words are full of truth because our Savior's life was full of grace and truth. He says, no more angry words. Do you see that in verse 26? He starts this conversation and he says, be angry, but don't sin. That's the literal rendering of it. Be angry, but don't sin. Because anger is not exactly sin because Jesus was angry. When he was turning over the tables in the temple, he was angry, but he never sinned. How do we become angry without sinning? Well, John R.W. Stott says we ought to be angry about some things that we're not angry about. We ought to be angry at sin. Without being hateful to sinners, we can be angry at sin. You say, how can we be angry at sin without being hateful to sinners? Because we ourselves are sinners. We can't be hateful to those who are sinners, but we can be angry at the effect of sin. Have you ever seen something that, that bothered you so much that was so sinful, you, just, you, know, you could just almost bite through your lip? You just, you just, oh, I can't believe that is happening, and we want to protect um, those who are innocent from those who are evil, and so there's something in us that wants to oppose that. Of course, we ought to be angry sometimes, but he says the problem with anger is very quickly it becomes sin. In fact, if we don't sort of nip it in the bud, it will transform into sin. What, what's wrong with anger, really? Well, it does two things. He says in verse 27, it gives the devil a foothold. That is, anger will become sort of a launching pad for other sins in my life. Um, anger gives the devil a foothold. Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and anger will devour you if you are not careful. I read about a zoo where they had a, an exhibit with, with a lion and a monkey, and uh, one of the observers asked the zookeeper, so how do the, the, the lion and the monkey get along? And the zookeeper said, well, pretty well most of the time. Well, well what happens when they don't get along? He said, well, well then we have to get a new monkey because uh, the, when lions and monkeys get mad at each other, the monkey doesn't win. Maybe you feel in this Thanksgiving season like the monkey. Somebody's anger has devoured you, or God forbid... Maybe we've been the lion and our anger has consumed somebody else. He says, don't give the devil a foothold in your life. Anger, by justifying righteous anger, you'll give way to other sin in your life. The second thing he says in verse 30 is it it grieves the God who lives in you. It grieves the Holy Spirit. You don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you why you don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit because he's the one who seals you until redemption. He's the guarantee of your relationship with God. And when anger fills me, it pushes God and his power and his love into a corner of my life. But, but, but God's love should so consume me that anger doesn't consume me. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you why. 
because he's been too good to me. God has been too good to me for me to grieve him. Let this be an incentive for righteousness in our lives. It's not just that we're afraid of God judging us. Christ has assumed that judgment. He has taken the penalty for our sin upon himself. No, it's not that I'm afraid of what God's going to do. I'm not afraid he's going to strike me with a lightning bolt because I'm angry or I speak angry words. It's just that I'm so grateful for his goodness to me that it changes the way I walk. It changes the way I talk. And isn't that the real problem with our angry words? That, that anger sort of overflows from our mouths when we're not looking. So in verse 29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. In fact, what he says is, don't let, verse 26, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Our daughter observed this week, it's really getting dark early these days after the time change. You've noticed that as well. Every time you see the sun going down, let that be a reminder that you need to forgive whoever it is you're angry at. I'll never forget the sweet, beautiful little lady from Memorial Baptist Church in Temple who met me and Melanie in the greeting line on June the 9th, 1984. I, I better remember that day. And uh, in the reception line at our wedding. And she came by and she handed us a beautiful, we still have it in our bedroom, beautiful little red embroidered pillow that said the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sins. And she, she grabbed both of our hands and looked up in our eyes and said, don't go to bed angry at each other. Let, let the married people in this room testify to the truth of that statement. Do not go to bed angry. Paul says, don't let the sun go down and you still be angry. So how do we, how do we become angry without sinning? Well, we better put a time limit on it because it has a way of festering and it becomes corrosive to our souls. I told our men's life group recently that um, we, um, I, I, I replaced the, I'll use my dad's expression, battery, um, battery in my son's car. And I put the old battery where? In the back of his, of his, uh, his forerunner. And I, I put the, this old battery in the back of his old forerunner and I forgot about it and uh, imagine a teenage driver driving in a way that the battery fell over I don't know maybe it just spontaneously I'm not sure how it fell over but it fell over at some point I'm not even sure when all I know is that when I went into the I opened the the hatch and I looked in the back there and everywhere that acid had been it had destroyed the mat, the carpet, it seeped down on some of the seat belts. It was still, last I heard, it was still going when it hit the metal. It, acid destroys, and anger is an acid in your soul. And that's why you have to let it go. Because it doesn't just hurt other people. Paul says it will, it will hurt you. In fact, doesn't he just sort of exhaust the Greek language, just take my word for it in verse 31 when he says, get rid of, here's the list, bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice. He says, the minute you begin to speak your anger, you are in the danger zone. You are in trouble. But he doesn't just say stop. Look, we could, just, we could, talk, about, we could talk about Herod's, not only about his lying, but about his anger. Remember in Matthew 2 how his anger breaks forth and he kills all the baby boys in the area there uh, around the place where Jesus was born. We could talk about un, unchecked anger in our lives, but it's not just stop being angry. He says, no, God will replace that with what? Verse 32, with kindness, with compassion, with forgiveness. Earlier he says the Holy Spirit changes the way 
we give so we no longer steal, but we work so that we can give. Now he says the Holy Spirit changes the way we forgive and we forgive each other because in Christ God has forgiven us so we don't speak angry words. Joseph Tolishkin asked a group of people to whom he was speaking, he said, um, how many of you can make it 24 hours without saying something unkind about somebody else? Who can make it, he said, just 24 hours? And a few people raised their hands, but most of the people laughed, and some said no out loud. And he said, if you couldn't make it 24 hours without drinking alcohol, we would say you had an addiction to alcohol. If you couldn't make it 24 hours without using tobacco, we would say you have an addiction to nicotine What does it say that you can't go 24 hours without speaking an unkind word about another person? You know, Augustine, the church father, had a sign on his table that simply said, nobody who speaks an unkind word about a person who is not present is welcome at this table. To come to our table, to come to God's table is to say, I will not be unkind to other people. That's anger about other people, that's gossip. It's, it's like the age-old story of the three preachers who uh, were out fishing in the boat and, and they started confessing their sins to each other and the one said, yeah, I've got this problem. I've been, I've been betting on the ponies, you know. I, I've, been, I've, been, I've been betting on horses. And, and the other one said, yeah, well, I've got this problem, you know. I, I buy a lottery ticket every once in a while. And they looked at the third guy and said, what's your problem? He said, gossip, and I can't wait to get home. You know, sometimes it's not that we say something bad to somebody, but that we say something bad about others. He says, slander, put these things aside. But instead he says, look, he says, you don't speak empty words. You don't speak angry words. You don't speak ugly words. Hasn't our culture turned vulgarity into an art form? I mean, the, the words that are used, you know, I was trying to explain it to some of our younger members the other day, and I said, look, not just in my lifetime, but in your lifetime, the standard has declined precipitously. It has gone down greatly. The standard of the the things that you should be able to say and do, these things have gone way down. But he says, these things, obscenity, verse 4 of chapter 5, foolish talk, coarse joking, they shouldn't even be named among you. No immorality among God's holy people. And notice, this is interesting. Would you have put this as an alternative to, to vulgarity and obscenity? His alternative is what? Thanksgiving. And we look at that and go, What's the connection there? Well, here's the deal. God's gift of intimacy to us in marriage is so good that we should be so grateful to Him that we would never cheapen the currency by using vulgar language, by using obscenity, by making coarse jokes. Why? Because we are just so incredible, incredibly grateful to the God who gives to us, who forgives us, that we live with thanksgiving. We live with gratitude because we are grateful for the greatness of the goodness of our God. So we forgive. It's in that story that Helen Prejean uh, tells this nun over in Louisiana. Remember, dead man walking. And she tells the story of the LeBlanc family and the Saunier family and the two Sonier boys killed the LeBlanc son. They killed David LeBlanc when he is 17 years old. And as a result, people in the community, when they hear that these two young men have killed this other young man, they know where these two killers' mother lives. And they begin to hurl epithets and eggs and everything they can and threats 
at the mother of the two boys who were the murderers, and the father of the boy who was murdered goes to the mother of the murderers with a basket of fruit and says, I'm sorry that people are treating you that way because you didn't do what your sons did. You can't bear full responsibility for the behavior of your grown sons. There was a grace in that when somebody asked, how is that possible? How could the father of a boy who was murdered act that way? He told his story. Lloyd LeBlanc said that when he got the news, he went down to the morgue and identified his 17-year-old son who had been shot through the back of the head. And he said in that moment, he who was very... The father, Lloyd LeBlanc, very good with his hands, loved to fix things around the house. He said his first thought was, I can't fix this. I can't change what has happened. And the only thing he knew to do at that point was to begin to pray the Lord's Prayer. And he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we... And he said... I thought when I began to pray that part of the prayer, I can't go there. How can I forgive? And then he felt like the Lord said to him, until you forgive the ones who killed your son, you can never experience my forgiveness for your sin killing my son. And having fully understood that God had forgiven him, he felt he had no alternative but to forgive. And then he makes this, I think, profound statement. He said, forgiveness is not an event. Forgiveness is a path of life. It's not just what we do occasionally. It's the way we live. Just as God responds to us with forgiveness, we are to respond to each other with forgiveness. I'm telling you, not just try a little harder to do a little better. I'm telling you that since you've become new in Christ... You not only stop talking with with empty and angry and ugly words, but you speak the truth and you speak forgiveness and you speak thanksgiving. Be glad, be glad, be glad. Every debt that we ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be glad. Be glad. Be glad. Heavenly Father, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And today, Father, because this is the day that you have made, the day when the stone that was rejected became the chief cornerstone, when Christ became the center of our lives, everything changed. I pray, Lord, that you would transform us by your truth as we put our trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.